You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear Lord, we come to you now asking ever and always that you send your Holy Spirit to teach us and uh, show us your gospel, show us your son, make him more beautiful and believable for having been here today. Amen. Okay, so many of you have grabbed it, but I just want to make sure that uh, outside on that table right there is what we were passing out last week and this week. It's a commentary and guide to our liturgy. In many ways, it's a distillation of what we've been trying to teach over the last few years with regards to our prayer book and our services, and in in many ways, it'll be cliff notes for what I'm talking about today. So it'll be a good one-two punch for you, learning-wise, if you're in this class, and then go back and kind of regularly regularly revisit the, the things that are in here. In this commentary and guide are both contained our, our morning prayer liturgy and our Holy Communion liturgy, and beside them, if you open them up, oh, thanks, thanks, Matthew. Um, it'll be liturgy on the left, and commentary on the right, it's sort of designed so that you can just open it up with a cup of coffee or whatever your beverage is and, uh, and enjoy sort of reading through. And I especially encourage you, we referenced a lot of scripture in there purposefully. And I'd invite you to check out uh, those passages of scripture as a way of connecting yourself with the liturgy. It's also online in PDF form, so you can basically... Send out the link to anybody. It's adventbirmingham.org slash our-liturgy. adventbirmingham.org slash our-liturgy, our liturgy. So I encourage you to do that. We've got two goals for this four-week class. We're in the second week now. You know, the first week we kind of overviewed the Book of Common Prayer and some main themes about the way the Word of God works. But these two goals are to help us better connect head and heart so that you and I aren't only sort of thinking our way through this very verbose liturgy, but it's actually starting to seep into our hearts and giving us a, what Cranmer would, would have us hear as a hearty repentance. You know, it's not hearty like a, a can of soup is hearty. You know, that's kind of how we use that word. Cranmer meant it, Old English meant it very much as heartfelt from the heart, you know, which goes very well with our, our sermon today from Doug. He mentioned the nature of the Lord looking on the heart, that it's kind of an inside-out thing, this worship thing, as we gather together. And that was the idea. So that's what I want to do with us. Uh, His purpose, Cranmer's was, and this is his own statement from his preface to the first English Book of Common Prayer, is that the goal of this whole thing was that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God, and in his words, be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. In other words, more in love with God more on fire for Jesus, as we use in our colloquialisms. The other purpose of uh, this class is to tune our ears to hear the gospel more clearly. So that's been the aim. I mean, I don't answer, and we don't answer in this commentary and guide, every question about our liturgy, where it's come from, what its significance was, this or that. We really are purposeful in helping you hear the gospel more clearly throughout the service. So that's been our aim. That'll be our aim through this class as we walk through morning prayer today. We said last week that uh, the central question being asked during the Reformation was how our people changed. And I was struck again by the morning prayer liturgy, just how much this question 
flanks the beginning and end of the liturgy as a way of talking about how that the goal of change is the production of, of good works for God. It's that he might use us to bless other people. And so you have that at the beginning, right in the absolution. And you have it at the end when we're praying this great thanksgiving and we're saying that our, that our lives, we may show forth and, and bear this fruit, you know. And the question they ask is, how does this happen in the Reformation? And they came to a different conclusion than the church of the day. They said it was by a work of, the God, of God in the heart, not by externals. And how does God do this work? Again, when they looked at the scriptures, they heard this decisive answer. We are changed through his word, particularly in the gospel. So if there's going to be any hope for you and I to actually bear that fruit that we pray happens, it's going to be by us going back again and again to this good news about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he's done, his death and resurrection for us. So that's the theology of the prayer book as it was understood when it was founded in a nutshell. The driving force behind the Reformation and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized, therefore, in this statement. We talked about this last week. The Word of God. It's the Word of God in the Gospel, particularly, that births faith. If we're going to have faith and love, if we're going to trust God with all that we are, and we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, if we're going to do that, it's going to be by the Word of God doing its work continually on us. So that was the mindset going into the Book of Common Prayer being given to us in the English tongue. The Word of God births faith. We walked through a bunch of illustrations of our liturgy last week where we said, you know how we talked about how right after the declaration of forgiveness, something happens. We stand and we sing in response. There's always this, this sort of routine to the way both morning prayer and Holy Communion work. God's Word comes at us, comes at us, does something to us, and then births in us the response that it requires. You know, It's a pretty powerful image of the way the gospel works. So the heart of the prayer book is unleashing the word of God, to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. That's the main thing. So I want to look at morning prayer today and walk with you through this liturgy. Now, if you open up your leaflet, you see this, a bunch of titles, you know, and it's kind of overwhelming. If you were to just flip through the leaflet and see voluntary hymn and procession, opening sentences, confession of sin, etc., et it's just sort of a lot of words flying at you, a lot of headings and titles. And the question is, how do we see the forest for the trees here? How do we understand the structure, kind of big structure of the liturgy? I would kind of encourage you to look at the morning prayer liturgy in two parts. They're both centering because, again, the theology of the prayer book is that the word of God births faith, right? So one half of the liturgy, this first two columns, the word read, all these elements are contributing to the word of God being, coming at you through, through being read toward you, you know? And it's the interaction of us with that read word of God. And then as we experienced even today at 9 o'clock, the Word of God preached and our response to that preaching. But that looks kind of dull. And I think that there's, especially for visual learners, a more helpful way of looking at the way morning prayer is structured overall so that we can see what God is doing in the midst of this liturgy. And it kind of looks like this, a little graph. We would describe it as a journey of from earth, us, to the heart of God. God is wooing us to his very heart, bringing us to his heart, and then the second half, sending us out. So this first part, us journeying, rather God pulling us, using his word 
to soften, massage, enliven our hearts, to bring us toward him. That squiggly line at the very beginning of the graph is important, and we'll get there. There's a little squiggle at the beginning of this interaction, and then God slowly is drawing us closer and closer to his heart. The kind of climax of this moment in morning prayer really is the sermon. The sermon being preached is where God's got you in his grasp, and he's declaring his unchanging, ineffable love for you. And then, which we experience pretty briefly, but it's nevertheless a kind of, okay, now that you know that I love you, go out, go back out and share this love with others. It's kind of the two-part structure in a different way of talking about the ark. You know, we talked about the word read and the word preached. It's another way of looking at that. That's a journey toward God's heart, you know, and then God sending us out to love and serve him on mission. If you go through morning prayer, visualize this every time you, every time you go, and you're going to have a different experience of this liturgy, I think. So I want to zoom in on that first section a little bit and talk about that squiggle, okay? That squiggle, I want to describe, by the way, if I, if I went back here and we look at this, I'd, I'd like to describe this line as a kind of emotional arc and a theological arc. It's the way we experience the liturgy if we're dialed in, not only in our head, but in our emotions and our heart. This is the way it can be experienced. So this sort of rising and falling is much like a rising and, and falling of emotion as well. And so it helps to make sense of what is this squiggle? When we, when we come into worship, uh, what is this first part? Well, it's an encounter with the living God that we find happening all over the scriptures. Anytime that a, a, a believer in God is encountering God for who he is, really, they sort of have to get stopped dead in their tracks, just like Isaiah did, and confess that in front of this holy God, I am not holy, right? So it's this journey. If we're getting from earth to God's heart, we get confronted on the front end. So I know this is probably a little difficult to see, but I've outlined in brief the way that these various elements kind of fit into this emotional arc and this journey toward God's heart. And you notice right at the beginning, after the voluntary, the prelude, and our first hymn where we're praising God and kind of getting emotionally and spiritually calibrated to enter into this lively living encounter corporately with, with God, the very first thing that happens is we need to confess our sins. Now, it's interesting because when Cranmer established the morning prayer liturgy and the evening prayer liturgy, if you go into our Book of Common Prayer, you basically have two services, two principal services for what's called the daily office, meaning if I'm going to sort of pray my way throughout the whole day, I'm given a morning service to go through and an evening service to go through. This morning prayer service is this morning service. When, when Cranmer set to architect the prayer book, he took those two services, and had distilled them from about seven or eight. Those of you who might have grown up in a, in a Roman Catholic background can know about the, the daily hours, right? Cranmer took those daily hours and distilled them into two. But one of the interesting things that he did is, is in the daily hours, you don't confess your sin until the end of the day. And there's a theology there. There's the theology that kind of about throughout the day I mess up and accrue sin that I need to sort of release to God at the end of the day. What Cranmer said, what the Reformers said, is that even before we do anything, we wake up sinners in need of God's grace. So if we're going to encounter the living God in worship, the first thing we need to address 
is our sinfulness in the face of his mercy. It's a debate in the Reformation around a word in Latin called concupiscentia, or what we say in English as concupiscence. It's, is this thing inside my heart that compels me toward outward sin and action, is that sinful in and of itself, you know? Is that sinful urge and desire something that God says is sin and worthy of judgment? The reformers said yes. The prevailing church said no, in a nutshell. This is Cranmer dealing with concupiscence. This is God dealing with our concupiscence as we enter in, which is why right when we start morning prayer, boom, we're confronted with the living God, and we say, not worthy, pinned to the wall, right? I want to briefly open these words and... This happens at the beginning of the service, and it happens so quickly. I wonder sometimes if, if we don't let this fly by us, how meaningful the selection of these words are. After the opening sentence, this is from today. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Right after that, there's an invitation that the minister gives to confess your sins. Have you ever processed that invitation? What are the two words that it starts with? Dearly beloved, why do you think that Cranmer and God, you know, would have us start there? Because God wants us to know at the front end, as we come clean, as we're honest before him about our brokenness and our need, that we do so in a context of his love and his grace. And there's a stark difference between confessing your sin to someone you know who is for you and with you versus someone who is against you, right? And so you hear this, and you hear this in the wedding liturgy as well, dearly beloved, right? This word, this address to the people of God is very purposeful. It's meant to, right at the get-go, give you great comfort that as you enter into this scary, honest thing of opening your heart before the Lord, you do so in the context of his love and grace. You're a child. You're his child. And so you come to him, and he says, I just want to remind you, at the front of this thing, I love you. Remember that. Remember that as you step in and you hear us fly by those two words, dearly beloved, that it is God saying to you, my beloved child, I love you. And then, this is shocking to us Anglicans and Episcopalians, right? Because this sounds awfully charismatic. I don't know if I believe this. We have come together in the presence of Almighty God. We've come together, in the, we, we actually believe that God's present in our worship. Holy cow, new thought, new thought, right? That God's actually here in a special way. That we're encountering the very presence of the living God as his people gather. No, his presence isn't localized in a building because of the building. Jesus, Jesus dealt with that in John 4 with the Samaritan woman when they had a theological debate about the presence of God and whether it was on this mountain or that mountain. And Jesus answered to her, a time's coming. When believers won't worship on this mountain and that mountain, but they'll worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because when two or three are gathered, there I am. That's what Jesus would say elsewhere. And that, that means that when the people of God gather, God reserves a, what we might say is a special dispensation of his presence for the people of God gather. So don't let those words fly by you. That when you come and gather with the people of God, God's going to do some specific and powerful things to reveal himself. Be a little charismatic, people, just a little. Not too much, but just a little, right? Just a little. We've come together in the presence of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. I'll actually, so that you can kind of see the, see the words. 
There we go. We've come together in the presence of God, our Almighty Father. And now I've kind of broken the lines out because I want you to look at the way that this preface gives us the purposes of worship, the purposes of gathering together. Why are we here? There are four of them. To render thanks for the great benefits that we've received at his hands. So it's already establishing at the get. One of the reasons we're here is simply to say thank you because God's grace and goodness has been pretty gracious and good to us this week. And we need to sort of offer up our due of just saying, God, you've blessed me and I need to say thank you. That's one of the purposes. Another purpose is to set forth his most worthy praise. You and I, the scriptures declare, were designed to praise the Lord. We were designed to worship him, to aim the affections of our heart and all the the goodness of our deeds toward God by loving other people and by honoring him. And so when we come, it's kind of that, it's kind of like a guitar that's been sitting on, um, on, on a rack for a week. Even just by sitting there, it gets out of tune and it needs to be retuned. Every time I pick up my guitar before I play it, I have to kind of tune it again, right? And it's sort of that same thing of acknowledging my heart is... The praise of my heart over the course of this week has been oriented in all kinds of directions. And I need you to tune my heart to sing thy praise in the words of the hymn writer Robert Robinson, right? So that's another, another purpose is to recalibrate your and my heart to set forth his most worthy praise. Number three, to hear his holy word. We've come to hear. Remember last week when I said that uh, for the Reformation, for the people who were discovering the word of God afresh, they understood that the Christian life could be summarized in this posture, hands cupped behind your ears. This is the Christian life. It's what Luther called the vita passiva, or the receptive life. That my life is one of receiving the word of God. And that as that word of God comes at me and I receive it, God does the work. The word of God births faith, right? Right? So we're here to hear his holy word. And here is more complex than just merely auditory. I think the point of, of the liturgy is that we hear with all our senses. We hear with our eyes. We hear with our nose and with our mouth. We hear with our ears, right? We hear with our hands and our touching. All those senses are engaged. They're ways, they're modes of receiving and hearing the word of God. And finally, to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others, those things that are necessary for our life and salvation. So especially morning prayer will emphasize that we're here to pray. We're here to pray for, as the prayers of the people would say, for the whole state of Christ's church in the world. We're here to be renewed in God, to praise him, to hear his word, but we're also here to act in praying for ourselves and the world, particularly as it comes to life and salvation, right? So these words, I know we fly by them every week, but they're really important. And so that we may prepare ourselves. We're preparing right now in heart and mind. Heart and minds together, they're not separate. They're not separate. Let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins in order that we may obtain forgiveness by his infinite goodness and mercy. I want to look at this confession. First thing I want to point out to you is that even as we confess our sin, the 
reformers wanted to make clear that if we tried to confess our, our sin on our own power, we wouldn't be able to do it properly. And so we're given the very words of God to confess back to him. Even our confession itself is a gift from God because this passage is stitched together of about 11 different passages of Scripture. These references are in your commentary and guides. You don't need to feverishly write them down. But even the very words that we pray to God, this this gift of the Book of Common Prayers, even the things that we say to God are his own word. He gives us the response that he requires. And so we see these words, Almighty and most merciful Father. And you'll notice this, especially at the beginning and end of morning prayer. God wants to put us, and, and the architects of the prayer book want to put us in, in the posture of sheep. Sheep posture. So this language is employed. We've erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against thy holy laws. One of the reasons why you see these, what are called couplets and triplets, devices and desires, you'll see this over and over again, this pairing of words that are kind of like synonyms but a little different, is because rhetorically, Cranmer especially, because this was one of Cranmer's inventions, was to take one word from Latin and translate it into two in English, is to sort of massage your heart a little bit longer around a concept. You know, we've erred and strayed, following too much not just the devices in our, of our hearts, not just the desires, but the devices and desires. All the things that we're scheming and all the things that we desire. Just a little more time to sort of grab your heart and make it soft toward the Lord. You'll see this again and again. Devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against thy holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done. You know what it's doing here? It's trying to leave no stone unturned. No sin stone left unexamined, right? You can tell because if you're honest about all the different ways and uh, the wily nature of sin, you're recognizing throughout this prayer, gosh, he's hiding every, he's sort of exposing everything. I can't just sort of talk about my deeds or the externals because he's also interested uh, in, in the inside and the heart and those desires in there. I can't just talk about things that I've done. I have to also talk about things that I should have done and didn't do, right? It's kind of like this sin spy investigator going in through the hallways, the dark places of your heart, and making you get really real with the Lord, right? Capstone, there is no health in us, right? Some people wanted to sort of take that out of the prayer book at various points, and we refused to. Number one, because it's scripture, (laughs) for goodness sake, it's from Psalm 38.3, there's no health in us. But another reason is that it, it's just basically saying if, if, there's going to be any, if there's going to be any way out of this, it's not going to be of my own accord. It's kind of like the period on the sentence of how deep this confession goes. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Some people wanted to remove that line. So Frank Limehouse made it his uh, email little tag at the end of it. Sincerely yours, Frank Limehouse, miserable offender, right? <laughs> Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according... See, this is, this is the great part. Even in this confession, there's a plea, and this is something you see in the Psalms as well. When there's a confession, there's a, a plea for God to act according to what he's already promised. There's a plea, and it's sort of, I'm going to throw this back on you, God. You said you would forgive. You said you'd be faithful. 
You said you are the God who loves steadfastly, that you're slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. So I'm banking that I'm going to get through this confession according to your promises, not according even to the sincerity of my heart. But I'm appealing to you, God. You see this time and again in the scriptures. This is a godly way of approaching the Lord, is appealing to his own word, appealing to his promises, according to thy promises declared unto mankind. And particularly, what are those promises that are going to save me? Those promises in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. So here you see, even now, the trajectory, that question being asked by the English reformers. How do people actually be good? Right? How do we live a godly, righteous, and sober life? It's only through repentance. I, it's only through coming to the word of God and letting it do its work on us. That's the only way, right? All right. And then we hear this declaration of forgiveness that's stitched together from a bunch of Reformation liturgies. But you need to rem remember and hear these promises. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desireth not the death of a sinner. Now, Cranmer found this in, not in, in some Reformation liturgy, but in uh, an introduction to a Reformation liturgy. And he said, that line is too good to not put in an absolution. So he said, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn repentance from his wickedness and live, not die, hath given power and commandment to his ministers to declare this word. And the reality is, according to the end of John, you are given that power as well to declare and pronounce to people the gospel, the absolution and remission of their sins. See, at the end of John, when the disciples were fearful and huddling, Jesus came to them. What happened? He breathed on them his Holy Spirit. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what did he say? I give you power to declare the forgiveness of sins to other people. So that means when you're hanging out with your friend at a coffee shop and they're pouring out their heart to you about how broken and sinful they are, grab a hold of the Holy Spirit within you and speak those words of forgiveness. Did you know that God doesn't desire your death, but God loves you? Did you know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And sometimes we need, in fact, we always need somebody else to declare that to us. You're given that very power. What do we do right after that? We say, O Lord, open thou our lips, and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. That quote from the Psalms that says, once I've been forgiven, the only thing left to do now is to respond to God in praise. So my lips were shut, just like David's confession in Psalm 51. But then he says, open my lips, and the thing that's going to fly out of me, out of my soul, is thankful praise for your work, which is why, as God's starting to woo us to the center of his heart, we sing a hymn at this point, all right? I want to go on to the next section as we journey toward the heart of the Lord. This whole section where we, there's, a, there's an invitatory hymn, an inviting. Hear that language as God inviting you to his very heart, that God's wooing you towards his heart. Because the next step of his massage work toward getting you to be soft toward him 
is to say, come to me, which is why you'll often hear the choir sing something like, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Oh, come, let us adore him. It's an invitation to forgiven sinners to take a little step closer and hear what the Lord would say next, right? So we have this invitatory hymn, and then we have this cycle of scripture readings, and then a responsorial hymn, right? And I want to look at this in a way that, that you can think of this section as God's drawing us further. So God's forgiven us our sins, and now he engages in a dialogue with you. He engages in a conversation. He speaks, and you respond, right? So it's kind of this motion throughout, throughout this section of morning prayer. God speaks, we respond. God speaks this declaration of forgiveness, and we respond by singing a song. God speaks his word again, read in the psalm, an epistle, and an Old Testament reading. This scripture is God's word coming at us again to try to massage our heart by exposing those places that need exposure, but also declaring that comforting word. And what's our next, what did we do this morning after that? We said, surely it's God who saves me. I will trust him and not be afraid. So do you recognize that in this moment, in this section of morning prayer, God's trying to, hey, Let's talk for a little bit. I'm going to share some things, and then I want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to share some more things, and I'm going to hear. And what is God sharing with you? He's declaring again his love for you, his love for you. And uh, I don't want to go past it too quickly, but at the end of that cycle, as we observed last week, as God's word came at us and we responded, and our hearts sort of filling up with joy, what's the next thing we do? The creed. We say, I believe, we declare our faith and our belief. The word of God births faith. And finally, as we journey towards the heart of God, there's this series of prayers that we, we, we might wonder, why in the world um, are these in this order? Well, if you were to look in there um, at the Lord's Prayer and the suffrages and the collect and the prayers of intercession, as I pointed last week, Let's find what page those are on your annotated leaflet if you've got it. They start on page 20, 20, 22, and 24. Sometime observe the way God is being talked to. And what you notice is a progression of what we might call intimacy, that God is allowing us to speak in progressively more intimate language. We start with the Lord's Prayer to kind of set the tone of prayer and this long conversation of this series of Lord's Prayer, suffrages, collects of the day, and prayers of intercession. But what you notice is that the language gets progressively more heartfelt, more personal, and more intimate until you hear collects like what we prayed, what I prayed today. Keep, O Lord, we beseech thee, thy household, the church, in thy steadfast faith and love, that by thy help of thy grace, we may proclaim truth with boldness. And other collects like this, O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life and whose service is perfect freedom. What great words. You hear this, this intimate language. God's finally drawing us in until we get to that, that place where, kind of like John the Baptist the night of the Last Supper, our head is laying on the heart of our Savior. And we're able to sort of look up at him and say, hey, these are the really personal needs of my life and the lives of those I care about. Which is why it's at this moment that we pray our, our prayers of intercession, 
right? Because all of a sudden we're sort of doing family business. These are the needs I'm concerned. My heart's heavy for our country. My heart's heavy for our world and our missionaries and other churches around. My heart's heavy for those in our community who've lost loved ones. My heart's rejoicing, God, and I thank you for, for the births and the life and the marriages, these moments of life, and we celebrate these, these uh, momentous times of life together. You know, it's these most intimate prayers. And so God has finally drawn us in, and we're able to ask for those things, for ourselves and on behalf of others, those things that are necessary for our life. So we've made it. We've kind of gotten to this point. The grace is offered. And then we're finally at the heart of God, where we're welcomed and blessed, and then a sermon is preached. Not every church has this philosophy of the pulpit, but Advent certainly does. That the job of the pulpit in any and every passage is to do what the job of the Word of God is, which is to declare God's love for sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's that moment where we're at the heart of God, where, you know, a child has jumped into the laps of her father, and the lap of, of her father, and the father's just saying, let me tell you how much I love you, and just kissing her all over her face, right? That's, that's the idea, that's the vibe, that's what's happening, is God has wooed you and massaged your heart to experience this most intimate and heartfelt thing, and I grant that it doesn't always feel that way, does it? And in fact, it's more fleeting than real, that we, we get that sense of, gosh, I really felt the presence and love of God. I felt drawn in and reassured by His love and grace. But that's kind of the the goal and the arc of all this, such that afterwards, you know, when we've, uh, when we've gotten through some of this stuff, oops, when we've gotten through some of this, God graciously takes us to a place where we, in response to this sermon, offer ourselves up and say, God, I've heard of your love, now take all of me. I give myself to you. I offer myself to you. You see, the offering isn't just putting money in a plate. God have mercy if it's just paying the lighting bill, right? It's really a symbol and a token of us in the words of, in the language of Romans 12 saying, in response to your great grace, I offer my body as a living sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that is wholly offered to you, but lives, doesn't die, but actually sacrifices through living. Sacrifices through laying myself out, not for God, because God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So having heard of God's love for you, you can go out. You can go out, and in this closing prayer and blessing and hymn and dismissal, that's why we say at the end of our service, what? Let us go forth in the name of Christ. We say thanks be to God, and you're booted out to go be a missionary, You're booted out to go declare that very love that you experienced to others. You see, you've been brought into the heart of of God, only to be sent and declare that heart. And then come back, because we all need to be recalibrated in this rhythm. All right, so that's where I want to stop. And I want to entertain any and all questions that you have. And maybe just entertain them, not really answer them. Just kidding. But uh, Abby is going to... This is my wife, Abby, by the way. Hey. So... um, yeah, how do you turn it on? Right. Any questions? Jane. Uh, Zach, I just want to say thank you. This is just really so helpful. And this um, booklet that you've 
compiled is wonderful. Praise God. Yeah, so thank you. And this really does um, make so much sense of how our worship is, is structured, mm -hmm. particularly with the fact that we're booted out yep. to go declare God's love to right. a hurting world. So thank you. Good, good. Oh, here and then there. Or, or just, yeah, here and then there. Again, yes, thank you. But do you think you said you may do some revisions of this? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure. No doubt, inevitable. just like the prayer book. It's never fully done, right? Yeah. Do you think you'd ever consider adding a footnote as to why we've made certain little changes? Like, of course, we we like the miserable offenders and no health issues. Yeah. But to maybe just explain that because there's a good explanation. And it would there be are. We've tried to explain. Anytime there's been a, a change toward an older prayer book, actually. Right. I have. So if there's not, let me know. Let me know what that is. If, is it in here about why we added that and that it's a it's a no, not that particular one. Yeah, if you book? all look at the 1979 prayer book, there's no miserable offenders in there. Yeah. We added that in because we kind of think we are. <laughs> it's what? it's not popular to say. I mean, that's sort of the short answer. When I look at the scripture, it describes me as a miserable offender. Yeah. I think it's worth reminding my hard, stubborn, wanna avoid sin heart that I am one. So, yeah, that's good. Thank you. That's, that's right. He required it. Yes, that's right. In the confession of sin, uh, the bottom five or six lines yeah. starts out with, Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises, so on, and grant a most merciful Father for his sake. Yeah. And the his isn't capitalized. To whom does that refer? Uh, that refers to Jesus. That's a good question. When we say, according to thy promises declared in Christ Jesus our Lord, and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake. So we're just following the capitalization of the prayer book here, and it's kind of random when it capitalizes. It's very, actually really inconsistent, which is sort of funny. Some things get capitalized sometimes and don't other times, but usually it's pretty consistent that it's just its own convention and style that it doesn't capitalize divine pronouns. So, it's an interesting question. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, we're at the most. You're really pretty. <laughs> if we're at the most intimate part where we've God has drawn us to His heart, yeah. Um, it seems anticlimactic to me to do the welcome. You know, a lot of churches do that at the very beginning. Thanks for coming yeah. to our church. What is there a reason it's there? Yeah, it is. It's, um, I mean, that's a good question. It would, kind of the only two places to probably do a welcome is either here or at, um, or at the beginning of the service because it's not necessarily part of the liturgy proper. It's something that's sort of a necessary hazard of pastoral ministry that we need to say, hey, everybody, welcome. I mean, that's important. But then to say, we've got a few announcements, right? I was just like, ugh. All of a sudden, all the sort of love juice has been drained out of my heart, and now I have to hear this bulletin board of nasty things that the church is about, or not so nasty. But you know what I mean? Like it, I can get why that feels. This is probably the only spot for several reasons. Number one, pragmatically, it helps us dismiss the kids at nine. Um, number two, when we talked about that two-part structure to morning prayer, the word read and the word um, preached, it's at the hinge moment. So it's kind of at a natural place where there's a break if we're sort of having a a turning point in the liturgy, and you'll observe the same thing about where the welcome falls for Holy Communion as well. That's a, that's a good point. It seems awfully late, 
especially if you're part of almost any other tradition. It's like, you took this long to welcome me? I've been here for like 45 minutes, right? Um, and so, yeah, it is a little different, but um, it's just kind of where it, it helps to fall pragmatically for a bunch of reasons. So. Zach, just one quick uh, comment. So much this was so good um, to explain uh, not just the, the details of the liturgy, but the, the timing of everything. Yeah. Um, and I loved, I'd never heard that, I loved the idea of having moved the confession early on yeah, and from a day from the, your day perspective, I think it, it kind of harkens back to this notion of our sinfulness is not because of what we've done. That's At right. the end of the day, it's because of who we are when we wake up. That's right. So that's the biblical weird. understanding is that we sin because we're sinners. You know, there, there's an order there. There's an internal heart. That was the whole thing in the Reformation. Was like, we, there's a whole deep, much deeper layer to this whole sin thing than just outward deeds and getting those outward deeds to fall into conformity. We've got hard hearts that need changing, and the only thing that's going to change that is not me pulling myself up by my bootstraps, but by God's Word coming at me, breaking me open, and then sewing me up again, resurrecting me, you know? And so uh, that was the aim of these liturgies, was to do that break-open work, as we'll see next week when we enter into the Holy Communion liturgy. Why do we, why do we enter... And the first thing that we pray, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open. It's not open like, oh, God, I'm open to you. It's like open heart surgery. You just sawed open my sternum, and I'm laid bare before you because I know what your words, you, you, your all-seeing eye, the eye of God, misses nothing. My heart is laid bare before you. So it's really important. We, uh, we need to come clean about our sinfulness, our concupiscence, right at the get-go. Other thoughts or questions? Thank you, Zach, for this. I, I wondered, it seems to me in the, in the structure of the morning prayer, the one discretionary part is the sermon, and you've described just how important the sermon is yeah. emotionally and spiritually. Can you, would you share a little bit of your process of how you approach when you're, when you're giving a sermon? Huh? Like, how are you, what do you just, you know, yeah. in terms of that part of the liturgy, how do you approach it? Yeah, I approach preparing a sermon by... Because I have the benefit of not having to preach every week and having that constant pressure, um, I think the best sermons are preached out of living with the Word of God for a while and letting it do its work on you and in you. So I try to, as soon as I know what I'm going to preach on, I try to start studying that passage in earnest. And I find that study, exegesis, is a form of meditation. It's a form of a way of breaking down and soaking in the Word. And then I let it, I don't try to form a sermon then and there. I sort of let it live with me, and I think about it when I drive. I think about it when I interact. What, is, what, are, you, what are you saying, and more importantly, what are you doing to me, Lord? Uh, what are you doing to me right now with this word? Because the word's living and active. I try to ask the question, how is this word acting on me? You know, it's Paul Zoll who said it's, it's preaching at its best. It's kind of like Indiana Jones type thing, sort of a grotesque metaphor, but it's like God has done something to my heart, and I'm ripping it out and holding it before you, you know? So it's that idea of the Word of God having that kind of level of interaction with me and my soul, and hopefully in conversation with others, and just as the Spirit of God works in our community and works in my relationships, I, I try to be cognizant of the way that that Word that I've been studying is coming at me from a thousand directions, and 
usually within the last week, in a bit of a panic. Uh, I'm trying to sketch something together that I might say and regurgitate for the people of God. Yeah. What? And I always end with the gospel. I mean, it's really important for me. And that's because that's what I find God always ending with me, with is the word of Jesus Christ. All right, everybody, bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.